0: (laughs) My gosh, I can hear you chewing. (laughs) So, hey, welcome back to Rhythms of Grace. Uh, My name's Nate. Uh, I'm here with Sung Kim, who is currently eating an apple. Finishing my lunch. (laughs) That's right. Uh, So, this is a podcast that we launched specifically because um, there's a, one one of the things we were talking about is that there are lots of things that you are thinking about or processing that don't necessarily fit or make it into a Sunday sermon let's say. There's a lot of ground that we want to cover um, that doesn't always fit very nicely on on stage on Sunday, but it still is vital to to living a life of faith. Um, So this this is called Rhythms of Grace because we're talking about how in our daily lives we can experience rhythms of who God is uh, and who God wants us to be. So we've been talking uh, about seasons, we've been talking about stages, uh, and this uh, episode I'm like entering with a great deal of fear because we're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> about adolescence, which was a terrifying season in my life. Was it? Uh, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I will get into it, I, yeah. you know, because we're going to be talking about um, identity, yep. right? Which, mm-hmm. uh, which, um, for various reasons, was, was hard for me uh, in adolescence. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, and, and uh, so well, let's just dive in. Let's just dive in. Why don't, you, why don't we uh, get started?
1: Yeah, and the framework we've been using to go through these stages is by a psychologist named Eric Erickson. And he, in each stage, he has kind of two attentions that, that this stage is where a person develops certain things. And so in adolescence, ages 12 to 18, he would say it, it is a tension between identity versus identity confusion. Okay. And that plays out in so many different ways. You know, when you think of adolescence, that's a season where you are—you uh, know—you're uh, you're preparing for young adulthood, and so you can oscillate between uh, acting like a child, yeah. <laughs> and and being responsible like an adult, yeah. Um, and so it, it, it's it, it, you're trying to figure out who am I? Sure,
0: adolescence is where uh, people start to try to they. Sort of form their alliances in high school, let's say, like are you a jock? are you a geek are you know stoner i mean maybe maybe I'm just referencing eighties movies <laughs> <laughs> but but again, like that that is part of what happens. People really begin to try to find out who am I, and a lot of that ends up being alignment with with peer groups or mm-hmm. uh, or I guess it doesn't even have to be physical peer groups anymore. It can be digital or audio. yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I think especially during that phase, it's really the the default is to find your identity in certain areas. So uh, like academics Mm -hmm. uh, or even athletics. And so sometimes students will just dive into one or one or more of these things because they get affirmed. And if they didn't receive affirmation, maybe at home or in other places, this is the place where they finally feel like maybe this is who I am. Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, that was absolutely my experience. Uh, My older brother was and still is sort of unapologetically sort of like on the fringe and very comfortable there in a lot of different ways. And he's received a lot of um, affirmation for that just because he's so unapologetically who he is. Mm -hmm. My younger brother, who's two years younger than me, loved to be the center of attention. He was like <laughs> always on stage singing, performing. He loved it. And I literally was like the invisible middle child. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I, I decided. Where are you, Nate? <laughs> I can't see right? you. So I decided to kind of um, create my identity by high, high, high performance. Mm. Academics. Uh, leadership, kind of like the ability to move in social circles, um, sports. I basically tried to be the best at everything that I could. And like you said, I got a ton of affirmation for that, Mm. a ton of affirmation. Mm. Yeah. So how did that work out? Yeah, it sucked. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) I I basically feel like the lessons that I learned in adolescence about being a high performer, I have spent the rest of my life trying to unlearn. Wow. It it has been, uh, it has been, while it has made me successful in a lot of ways, internally it has been continually destructive.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: And not only to me, but it's been destructive to my wife and my kids. You know, like my tendency to like demand perfection from my kids was something I had to work really, really hard to undo if I was insecure about how I was performing, like that made my marriage really difficult. You know, I was miserable and still am. Sometimes if I feel like I'm underperforming, Mm -hmm. uh, I can just be a real like miserable person to be around. So I'm trying to unlearn it,
1: (laughs) man. You know, my, my dad was uh, kind of laid those same kind of expectations growing up. I remember I, 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 I struggled in math and, Like, whenever he left home, and it was the weekend, he would always leave me math problems to solve.
0: Like, not... Tied to your homework, just literally like dad homework.
1: Yeah, and like get this, he'd be like, uh, "I'm like dad, I don't understand this algebra problem." And then he'd be like, "Here, this is how you do it." And then, oh, let me show you calculus too. I'd be like, "Dad, I don't even understand algebra."
0: So, did you? Were you one of those kids that then tried to rise to the level of achievement?
1: No, man. Oh my
0: goodness, (laughs) I knew the answer. (laughs) There was a part of me that was like, "Screw you."
1: (laughs) And yeah. it was like, uh, so rebellion was my MO. I you, you know, throughout middle school and high school, I tried the academic track and you know, like I'm I'm I'm. I guess I, I don't know, I'm smart in a different kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's
0: true. It's true. We could joke about it, but it is true. You got street smart.
1: Um, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, here here's an example. Junior year I'm taking chemistry and uh um, our, our chemistry professor was like a year from retirement. He was this old guy, just really nice, but just totally oblivious. Mm. And like literally half the class, we would cheat on exams. Oh,
0: my gosh.
1: Like he was so oblivious. We would pass answers to each other. And so going into the final exam, my junior year, I had a 99% in chemistry. I actually knew nothing about chemistry. Wow. And it was the final exam and li- lived in New York. So there's a statewide exam. Uh, it was called AP. Oh, uh, no, I, I don't remember what it's called. But anyways, um, and I was just like, I, have, I don't know how I'm going to pass this exam.
0: Oh, I don't man. know anything. You <laughs> had a 99 and didn't know anything about <laughs> chemistry. Yeah,
1: well, so the night before the, the statewide exam, uh, a couple of kids broke into like a vault where they stored what? the exam and they published it in some state, city or state newspaper and so they had to cancel the, the statewide exam. So I, 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 I got off chemistry with a 99%. No way.
0: <laughs> so this is going to crack you up. Again, I have only cheated one time <laughs> in my life, and I remember it. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. In fifth grade, I didn't know the capital of Florida, and we were taking a test, and I looked at my neighbor's paper. Oh. I even remember who it was, and it was Tallahassee. <laughs> 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 so whatever that's literally the only time, man, I have ever cheated. And I still oh – re- I even remember goodness. the name of the of the girl that I cheated off of.
1: <laughs> so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so academics was not where I placed my identity, you know. And so I actually did really well in, in high school academically. I placed out of first semester calculus my freshman year in college – and like my freshman year, I uh, uh, get this. I flunked two out of my five classes, oh, man. I, I was just like this newfound freedom. Uh, I, I was like hundreds of miles, miles away from my parents. I just partied. I just, you know, yeah. and, and, and it was true of athletics. You know, I played football. I played volleyball. I played track and field. uh, yeah, You know, I was fine, you know, nothing to write home about. And, um, so, again, those things that some people really excel in, I didn't. And, um, but, uh, you know, when I look back towards my years of rebellion, and, and this is true just in general when rebellion happens, um, a lot of times, you know, there are things that you hate, let's say, about your parents or the way they see things. Mm-hmm. And uh, my rebellion was not so much of, like, it, it, it was grounded more in who uh, I'm not, Yeah. Because I was resisting my parents and not so much this is truly who I am. Yeah. So if they like something, I would hate it and I would almost like the opposite. Not because I may have really liked it as much as just to spite them. Yeah.
0: And you can really see a pretty a a clear line between that sort of mentality and confusion. If you only define yourself by what you're not, it's like there's a million things to not be. How will you ever actually land anywhere? Yeah. And, and again, that's where, especially in, in Christian homes, uh, this is
1: why you know, I've had Christian parents say like, you know, they grew up in a Christian home. You've gone to church. How did my kids turn out this way? And it's like, I don't know that whatever this, the soil or circumstances or climate is there, you know, uh, and, and the wiring of the parents and the kids, just a certain dynamic. Some, you know, uh, the, the, the hardest, the hardcore atheists of this world are all children of the church. Yeah. they didn't become atheists because they grew up in a non-religious home right most of them grew up in a very fundamentalist legalistic home and and it was that kind of environment that actually made them atheists
0: yeah i mean we had a joke i went to a private christian uh school and we had a joke that the pastor's kids you could tell because they were always the worst (laughs) you know they were always the. you were a pastor's kid
1: (laughs) oh my god (laughs) thanks a lot No, you know, and again, it was during uh, about 16, 17, where I started to, like, the height of my rebellion, and I remember, my dad was a pastor, and he, he was actually a, a full-time engineer, a chief engineer, and a full-time pastor, wow. so he was, like, never home. Yeah, he, He'd go, uh, during the day, go and work, and then in the evenings, he'd come home, write sermons, go visit people, and I was probably about 16, and I remember at one point getting so angry, because he was never home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was going to visit another family in the church. And I said to him, dad, you care more about the, uh, the kids in the, or you care more about the other kids in the church than you do your own kids. Uh, I was just so angry, yeah. you know, and, and that was just the seeds of my rebellion. And, and for me, you know, I'm not proud to say this, man, but I, uh, uh, you, you know, drinking, smoking, I, I never did hard drugs, but man, just hardcore all the way with some of those things. I, I, I mean, this is scary, but, I got my first job when I was sixteen. Uh, on the weekends, my boss would throw like a, a big party at his house after work. I remember coming home from those parties at sixteen, oh, like man. plastered, and I was driving.
0: Wow! Uh,
1: oh, my <laughs> gosh. oh wow! And uh, I, I remember my after I graduated, I was eighteen. My, my parents were just so like, Sung, you're just you're just so far gone. They sent me and like again being Korean. I was like, uh, um, like just a, uh, um, a, a somebody who culturally they were not very proud of because I, I I didn't really know the language or the culture, so they sent me off to Korea for two months.
0: Really, they did. Okay. They're like, here, try to fix you. Yeah, or... wow.
1: Go learn your mother tongue, learn our culture, and it was there that I just partied more.
0: <laughs> oh no, that backfired. Horribly. It backfired.
1: It did. And so my worst drinking experience. I, uh, there was a big party. I, I I drank in two and a half hours, 18 shots of hard liquor. Oh, geez. And, you know, again, like that's where I hit rock bottom. That, that was this, and it was, it was just like, I, I don't know that I would have said it this way, but it was like, I, I I'll show my parents mm. who I am, Wow! all their rules, all right. their, you know, their limits, like they can't control me. Yeah. And that, again, you could see I was running away from something, not embracing who I am. I mean, this also happens in ministry. We talked about this, but like, you know, sometimes church planters, Mm -hmm. they want to, uh, when they plant a church, I mean, you, you really want to plant a church because you have a heart for those who don't know Christ and you want them to experience the grace of God. But a lot of church planters. It's because, well, I was at this big church, and they're doing it the wrong way. They suck, and I'm going to do it the right
0: way. Absolutely my story. Absolutely my story. The, the church that uh, I that I first uh, planted with a good friend of mine, the lead pastor in the Detroit area, the, uh, most of our conversations were, what are we not going to do? Mm. And eventually we realized that's a very, very short-sighted sort of strategy, but that's where we started. We both were like, we're not going to be like that. We're not going to be like that. Like, um, And you just eventually, uh, yeah, again, you can't establish an identity in, in rebellion. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, you know, as we t- take, uh, this discussion from adolescence into just identity in general, yeah, uh, because if you, if you haven't formed or rooted a strong sense of identity or, or it's rooted in the wrong kind of things it c- that carries into adulthood, it does. And so when you think of yourself, I mean, this is a helpful exercise. Uh, imagine you walk into a party and on the table, there's all those name tags, uh, you know, where you put your name, but instead of putting your name on there, uh, you have to identify yourself with something other than your name. And the question is,
0: what would you write on that name tag? Oh, man. Are you really asking me this? Because I don't know if that's a question <laughs> I can answer. We've talked we've, we've talked about this in other contexts, but but for me, it, it continues to be so difficult for me to identify myself apart from what I can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, those seeds that were that were sown kind of in my adolescence. Yep. I it is it's daily. Uh, that's not an exaggeration to say that it's daily to try to separate who who I am as a child of God. Mm from what I can actually manage to accomplish, yeah. man, it's, it is. Yeah. So I don't know that I could, honestly, I don't know that I could answer that. Yeah. No.
1: And that's a, such a strong temptation to, uh, to associate what we do with our identity. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'll, I'll share one pet peeve and one, one admission, one pet peeve, especially being a pastor every uh, occasionally I will, Some of our listeners or people at the church are like, "Oh, Sung has pet peeves." Oh man, a lot. (laughs) Here's one pet peeve. I I, I have friends or or others that I know who they'll like like on a Sunday morning. They'll say they'll they'll welcome and greet everybody, and they'll say, "Hello, my name is Pastor Sung." Okay. And I'm always like, "Dude, your name is not Pastor." Mm. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but again, even that is like a subtle. Nuance of like, no, no, this is who I am, and and that's a bit different than just saying, "Hello, my name is Sung, and I am a pastor."
0: Yeah.
1: Or, and and, you know, I think this is part of the reason why, too. And and again, like some people, depending on where they grew up uh, and they moved to the area, they'll they'll come and they'll they'll, instead of uh, saying "Hey, Sung," they'll say "Hey, Pastor." Mm -hmm. And again, I accept it. You know, I I get it. It's a sense of reverence and honor.
0: Yeah. But
1: I'm kind of like, well. Uh, just call me Sung. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I, I, I'm a normal human being.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think of uh, some good friends that we had, um, and they um, had a child with special needs, and they were very very specific about saying. Don't say that we have a Down syndrome child. Mm. Say that we have a child with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Again, it's that it's that subtle but so critical shift between saying that is not who this child is. Yeah. That is something that this child was born with and something that we are operating, you know, outside of as a family. But that is not the identity.
1: Right. Yeah. So that's a pet peeve. But <laughs> an admission is it is really hard for me to separate my profession from my identity. Yeah. Because. Um, my work, like, you know, my wife knows I, like, I, I enjoy it so much. It's so hard to differentiate like, um, just personal and vocational life for me. And and so again, like, uh, I think that's for so many of us and other, other times we associate our identity with kind of like what other people have said about us, right? Like, man, you're really smart. You're a genius Mm -hmm. or the other end, you're a nobody. You're worthless. And we automatically associate, okay, that is who I am. Yeah. Um, Or it could be something like, well, uh, this is how I'm feeling, so therefore that's who I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm feeling unlovable, so therefore I must be unlovable. Yeah. So, uh, again, like, it's, it's, like you said, it's a real challenge.
0: I think one of the things that I've observed and experienced, um, you know, so I have four kids myself, but as they have gone through adolescence, one of the things, especially talking about feelings or establishing identity, is that I've tried to communicate to them that adolescence is, should be a season of observation. And sort of waiting, because Mm -hmm. at least when I was an adolescent and for my kids as well, things can be like so up and down and back (laughs) and forth. You know, you're so susceptible when you're looking for your identity. Anything that someone says or anything that happens, the the question is, uh, is this is this who I am? Like, is this who I'm supposed to be? And so I've tried to communicate to my kids over and over again. We don't make those decisions right now. Yeah. You know, we, we simply observe and we will let God reveal our identity to us in time. So it's not like we're ignoring those things, but we don't ever take them on as our identity in this season because there's just, man, there's just too much in the mix, you know, and not to mention emotions and hormones and everything is (laughs) like, you know, just (laughs) off the charts. I love you kids. If you're listening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think you're getting a Uh, something really critical i I think our culture today will tell you your feelings or your actions determine your identity yeah right biblically it's actually the other way around your identity determines your behavior and it's your identity that gives you the filter for how to interpret your feelings Mm -hmm. and so if you're ever thinking like okay why do i do what i do why do i respond the way i respond like just you know understanding who you are determines what you do and and this is where i think the church in general like uh, in broad strokes just makes uh, a mistake here because churches we can focus a lot on somebody's behavior yeah and then what we want to do is we want to modify your behavior a- and that, that's true of parenting too, right? Let, let's change your behavior, but we don't get down to the root of of identity. Yeah. Um. But again, I- I- it's your identity that determines uh, how you behave and how you interpret your emotions and feelings.
0: Yeah, in some ways, I understand the the pull that direction because yeah. it, as a parent or as a as a you know, a person of faith, it's like easy. It's like observable. You know, like it's, yeah, yeah. It, there's like uh, those lists are very, very concrete. Mm. And even as we were talking about this earlier, identity is not nearly that concrete. So I, I yeah. can appreciate, especially as someone who wants a checklist, the pull <laughs> to say, well, look, just tell me what to do and not to do, and then we'll call that my identity and we're good to go. But the reality is that there's a ton of things happening under the surface in our souls, in our spirits, in our minds, emotions that God is, is has has created and is crafting to be something really quite different from merely what we do right
1: and and even that that can even be for like um if you think of yourself like well i'm a good dad yeah i mean you would think like okay well that's that's a good identity yeah but you know even that can fall apart because the moment you get upset at your kids and you get surprised at your own anger yeah like there goes your identity, yeah. right? And so I, I think this is what you're getting at. Like, how do you root your identity in something that isn't going to be stripped away from you? Yeah. Because even your your self perception of being a good person or a kind person, uh, in, in moments of stress or, or conflict. Uh, like this dark side will just rear its ugly head on, yeah. and, and then there goes that sense of sure uh,
0: who you are. And and again for me that has been a continual struggle. If if I define myself by what I do, hmm. and then if I'm unable to do that, like throws the whole thing <laughs> into disarray. Right, it disrupts the whole system. Yeah. Uh, so there is so much value in being able to separate those things out. But full disclosure, and and I hope we can talk about this a little bit. I don't quite know how to do that to be totally honest you know i mean it's for someone like me who has literally spent decades developing um the the sort of identity around what i can accomplish i almost don't know how to unpack that Mm. i don't think i'm the only one yeah yeah but but i that, that i would love to Tell me what to do, (laughs) I need your help. Well, I don't know what to do,
1: but I I will share this. Because, you know, oftentimes in my conversations with my wife, she will say, like, she will uh, resonate kind of with what you're saying, too. Yeah. Um, You know, like... Because we'll talk about identity. And even like what happened, for example, when I surrendered my life to Christ, how radical of a shift and at the core of it was a sense of identity. And she'll just say like, um, again, there's a lot of areas I struggle with. This is, this is less an area where like um, uh, the sense of uh, the groundedness of who God says I am I think because it was so central to my experience uh, of coming to Christ. You know, uh, uh, kind of going back um, with my dad, like, there was a, a lot of sense of anger. And and I've shared some of these stories in sermons, and, and if you're a part of Grace, you, like, you, you may have heard these stories, but um, it's worth retelling. But um, th- I, I remember there was w- one, this is back in the MTV Generation <laughs> the, the the millennials and gen z's are like mtv, MTV. Wow, what is that is that on the oldie yeah. station <laughs> but the, there was a, a song by aerosmith called janie has got a gun
0: janey's got <laughs> a gun <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah.
1: and they had that old pickup truck like you have one on your farm <laughs> that's right and uh, the tune is just really catchy, but I remember just the, the video music video just captured me because this was maybe at the height of my anger towards my dad. And Janie in this video, I mean, it, it was re- it's a really sad video. She, she's being kind of sexually abused by her dad, and, and at one point she, she secures a gun and blows his head off. I, m- I remember watching that video, and I was so angry at my dad at this point in my life. I was like 17 or so. Like, I remember feeling like, man, if I had a gun, wow. I would do the same thing. That's how, that's how much rage I had yeah. towards his absence, mm-hmm. M- more his absence and more his volatility when it came to his anger. Okay. It felt very capricious. Uh, there was no logical reasoning to some of the things that he said or did. At least that's what I felt like. And so when I came to Christ, it was my freshman year in college, and um, it was at a church uh, lock-in or, or something like that. And it was during a, a portion where, where we were singing songs. And, and you have to understand, I'm like, kind of like, okay, I, I'm just here because my dad wants me to go to church, but whatever. But the song just really catched my heart. And I remember this sense in my heart, like God saying, um, not audibly, but like a strong sense, like emotionally, mentally, just at the soul level, kind of saying over to me, like, you know, song. I know you feel like you grew up without an earthly father. Um, but now understand that I, I am your heavenly father. I, I mean, I broke down. That was the point of surrender for me. Wow! In the midst of all my rebellion, <laughs> all the shots of drinking and all, it, it, it was that. And it, it spoke right to the core of being loved, being yeah. accepted, and like a whole different identity. Mm. And, and the uh, the amazing thing is, like after that, like the, the kind of gap that uh, I had with my dad in terms of our relationship um, and the, uh, like the vertical uh, reconciliation with God, like literally overnight start to change my horizontal relationship with my earthly father. That's amazing. And, and even to this day, like, man, it's just we have such a strong, good relationship. But when you looked at my teenagers, you would have never thought. Yeah, never thought that we yeah. had a good relationship or any chance of having one. Yeah,
0: and in some ways, I think that story demonstrates that identity is is beyond like simply what we do or think or feel. You know, like something mm-hmm. changed that you weren't even sort of consciously working towards, but God transformed something fundamental. Uh, you know, again, I in some ways I wish I had <laughs> a transformative experience. What do we say for people like me who kind of feel like? identifying who God wants us to be is maybe a little bit more of a process. How do we begin that process?
1: Yeah. Again, I think it's really easy when you're not rooted in, let's say, uh, scripture or or just being in the presence of God. It's really easy to hear the voices around you. Yeah. Work, family. I mean, you know, uh, uh, social media to say, well, you're not enough. Yeah. And so I think it's really important, like, so let's say the practice of just immersing yourself in Scripture. For example, one of the things that Scripture says in Ephesians is, like, you know, in Christ, you are God's masterpiece. And and I know I've talked to enough people to think, like, when you say that, there's a sense of, like, I don't don't know about that. If you knew all the things in my life— I don't think God would feel that way or that you would even say that. And that's where the battle of like um, competing voices comes in. And the thing that I think that's really fascinating with that whole idea of being God's masterpiece, that means like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci or whatever, God has taken so much care mm-hmm. to craft and design you. And if you've ever created something uh, like a project or something, you know, kind of the affection that you have. Yeah for that project, yep. right? I mean, you do a lot of blacksmithing. Yep. I mean, so much care and attention goes into that. Yep.
0: And I will absolutely. I'll just take pieces that I made out and just like look at them again because mm. for me there's so much in there of the effort and the thought and the process and the decision making. So yeah, I totally get that.
1: Yeah. And I think the thing is like when people say like, "Oh, you don't know what I've done." Or you don't know, you know, and, and I think it's this whole idea like if you think of a masterpiece, um, if somebody vandalized like a billboard with, let's say, a politician.
0: <laughs> Any politician. <laughs> Any politician.
1: Won't say who. <laughs> like, okay, that looks bad. But let's say you vandalize the Mona Lisa. Yeah. That looks worse. Yeah. But on one, in one sense, you could be like, well, it's the same mark, right? Like, what's the difference? No, yeah. it's not the same. Like, the original glory of the thing that got defaced determines the degree of the tragedy of that uh, of that vandalism yeah and so when sin ruined uh, us as human beings um it's not like god is like oh well okay there goes that billboard right i i mean it's like oh the way we would think of when somebody slashes the mona lisa
0: yeah yeah
1: and just think of all the care attention and and even money and resources and time it takes that people that the experts uh, invest in to restore art that has been ruined. Yeah, And so to say, okay, you in Christ, yeah, you may have been defaced by sin, but let's understand like more than sin, your identity is in uh, being the
0: crown of God's
1: creation. Yeah.
0: That's so good. And I think one of the other things that we, and again, for me that has been so helpful is that the, the twin sort of strategies of Soaking myself in scripture Mm -hmm. and also therapy has helped me begin to distinguish between what is masterpiece and what is sort of like defacing that has been there for so long Mm -hmm. that it feels like it's integrated into the piece itself. But it it is true that the the more that you know, the more that you read who God says you are, Mm -hmm. the easier it becomes to distinguish. Yeah, yeah so that's a that's a good word that's a good word yeah um,
1: Trying to think of i've uh, let me close with this there's a story by uh, a guy in a book by anthony demello he it 's a book of just stories and parables that he tells, and I love one story, and I think you appreciate this it's kind of a farmish kind of story
0: now you're talking my language
1: <laughs> but uh, in the story, man finds uh, an eagle egg and he puts it in. Uh, his backyard with a bunch of hens and the eaglet hatches and he, the eaglet just kind of hangs out with all the chicks and they grow up together. And all his, his life, this eagle thinks that he's a backyard chicken. And so he scratches the earth, he, go, he eats worms and insects, he clucks and cackles and whatever else hens do. What, <laughs> what else do they do? That's pretty much it. Okay, and, and then, so, and then he, growing up, he would always thrash his wings and, and fly a few, few, few feet off, off the ground into the air, just like all the other chickens. And one day, he spots this majestic bird flying across the sky. He looks up and he, he turns to one of the chickens and says, Who is that? What is that? And they say, that is an eagle. They are the king uh, of the air and um, uh, of the sky. And then the chicken says, but we're chickens. We belong here on earth. And so the eagle lives and dies uh, a chicken because that's
0: who he thought he was. That's good, man. I think there's a lot of us that are eagles feeling like chickens.
1: Yeah. And so remember, uh, man, you, you are... God's crown of creation um, and you are God's masterpiece. That's good.
0: Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for your words sung. We will uh, hopefully catch you in the next episode where we talk about young adulthood.